Hi and welcome to our first ever podcast. Now in this series we're going to look at uh, some of the issues around mental health and mental well-being. So we'll look at everything from uh, anxiety and trauma, depression, through to meditation, mindfulness and a whole range of other things that will help us live healthier and happier lives. There's a great deal to talk about so let's get started. I'm David Walker and you're listening to The Quiet Mind. Thank you so much for joining us in this episode and hopefully as we go on you'll get some value from our discussions and it may just even set you on a path to become a happier version of yourself. So to begin with, in the spirit of um, openness and disclosure, it's probably fitting that I start by telling you something about myself just to get us going. So importantly, I should say to begin with that I am not a medical expert or a scientist or a trained counsellor. And so any input that I provide is purely from the basis of my own personal experience with these things that we're discussing, such as trauma, depression and anxiety. And over the course of our discussions, hopefully I will be able to uh, recall some of the things that I experienced and and some of the strategies I used to gain control of my anxiety. There will be, from time to time, uh, expert guests that will get on the show, and I'm going to leave the sort of science side of things to those uh, who will join us along the way as we go along. So for my part, I started life as a very normal, well-adjusted, happy child and uh, I suppose in many respects I had quite a privileged upbringing. Due to my father's job, I lived and went to school in various places around the world. Uh, We spent some time in Canada and South Africa before returning to the UK. And when we did return to the UK, I developed an interest in acting and that's what I did. I went to drama school and became an actor. I did that for a number of years until I gave it all up and joined the police in 2005. And it was really during my police service that I first experienced trauma and anxiety. But strangely enough, it didn't come from the kind of place you might expect because it wasn't the job itself or even the challenging and sometimes upsetting situations that we had to deal with. But actually, it came from the toxic culture of the police as an organisation. And when I say that, I mean things like the that there was racism and sexism and uh, narcissism and bullying and all of this kind of thing that, be, that was endemic within the culture in the police. And it just, it didn't gel right with me. I didn't suit that kind of environment, although I did put up with it for 11 years. And I suppose that's where the problem lies. Uh, in so much as what I experienced wasn't a, a single incident of trauma that you might expect if, say, you were the victim of a car crash or the victim of a crime. What what happened to me was more of a kind of sustained, low-level, insidious daily exposure to this kind of blame culture and bullying and, and oppressive management style. And ultimately, there was this sense of hopelessness I had of not being able to speak up about any of this. Because the culture in the police at that time was such that if you did speak up about these things, then you were seen as the problem. And so there was really no one to turn to, and there wasn't anything in the way of uh, understanding of how this culture might affect anyone, uh, or even any interest, uh, to be honest, in how people may be affected uh, by the kind of 
uh, oppressive management and bullying culture that existed at that time. And so after about 11 years of uh, service with the police, uh, this kind of daily uh, exposure to these kind of feelings ultimately ended up uh, in me having uh, a nervous breakdown. And this happened actually while I was at work. It happened in the afternoon one day. Uh, While I was sat at my desk, I had no control over it, but I started to feel the kind of physiological things that are associated with nervous breakdown. Now, I can look back in it and say that that's what it was, but at the time, I didn't have any idea what was happening to me at all. I simply felt that my heart started pounding in my chest. My, I could feel the, the blood pumping in the, the veins. And I also had this kind of gnawing, cold, horrible, twisted kind of feeling in my stomach as well. Um, and my blood pressure was rising and it just, all in all, it was a horrible, horrible feeling. And I knew that if any of my colleagues had attempted to speak with me, I would just have broken down there and then. So the most important thing to me at that time was that I had to get out of the building as fast as I could. And so that's exactly what I did. I got up and I got my jacket and I walked out the door and got into my car and came home. And I have never returned since. And during my 11 years as a police officer, I eventually specialised in the investigation of domestic abuse uh, because domestic abuse was something that caught my interest. Uh, And really since then, I have dedicated a lot of my working life to that for the last seven years, uh, working with uh, both the victims and the perpetrators of domestic abuse in different ways. Uh, So with with regards to the perpetrators, I used to run a training programme of behavioural change to ask them to address some of the toxic behaviours that they were showing uh, and try and kind of rehabilitate them in some way. And I now work with uh, providing support for the victims of domestic abuse as part of Uh, a service which is almost a kind of crisis intervention service to help them get on and get the things they need to move out of these uh, toxic relationships. And interestingly, one of the things that I have noticed while dealing with the victims of domestic abuse is that a lot of the things I'm hearing from these victims uh, is very similar to the kind of feelings I had experienced when I was in the police albeit their circumstances were very different to my own, the actual physical experience of trauma and anxiety is exactly the same. And to understand this, I think we need to understand how and why our bodies respond to trauma in the way that they do. And to understand that, we need to go right back to our primitive ancestors. So over the course of evolution, our bodies have changed significantly to adapt to our surroundings and to ensure our survival as a species. However, in many respects, and and in some situations, our brains actually still function quite primitively. And one of these primitive functions is something that you have probably heard of uh, in one sense or another, and it is the fight-or-flight response. Well, the fight-or-flight response is simply our body's pre-programmed way of dealing with perceived danger, and it's extremely important for our survival. However, the problem lies in the fact that the dangers that we uh, faced back in the Neanderthal cave-dwelling days uh, are no longer the same as the kind of dangers that we now face in modern life. And this is where things start to get a bit more problematic for us. 
Back in Neanderthal times when we were living in caves, the main threat that we faced was uh, animals such as tigers coming into the cave and attacking us. And so when that happened, we developed this fight-or-flight response, and that would kick in. And ultimately, what it did was it would pump blood to our muscles to try and ready us for a fight or to try and uh, prepare us if we had to run to safety to escape the, the threat. And it would also sharply focus our attention on the danger itself, ignoring everything else around us. Our bodies would flood with cortisol, which is the stress hormone. And this, in turn, would suppress our appetite. It would put us into a state of extreme alertness or hypervigilance, which is another term that we'll we'll discuss quite a bit as uh, this podcast goes on. Now, cortisol is a very important and necessary chemical in our bodies when it comes to survival. However, long-term exposure to cortisol can have quite bad effects on our health. Ideally, when we are in danger, we our bodies get flooded with the, the cortisol uh, and it allows us to deal with the danger. And then once that danger passes, our levels of cortisol will decrease again and return to normal. And some of these threats that I'm speaking about in modern day life are Things like our jobs, our our bosses, our colleagues, our interactions with those around us, uh, pressures, deadlines, you know, the fear of perhaps losing our jobs and not being able to provide for our families, uh, being able to pay our our debts. The the threat, when you start to think about all the different ways that we can have these kind of pressures around us in our life, we realise that the perceived threat to us is actually constant. And so is our exposure to cortisol then. And so over time, this cortisol builds up inside our bodies until we can't take it anymore. And our bodies simply shut down. And this is when we have a nervous breakdown. That was my situation uh, in the police. And that's uh, the experience that I had with uh, my own sort of trauma and anxiety. But again, imagine now uh, a victim of domestic abuse where the danger is the abuser. And the abuser is actually living in the same house. So there's no escape. It's not like if you were in the street and someone was abusive towards you in the street, you could come home to your place of safety, you could close the door and lock out the threat and you were perfectly safe. Victims of domestic abuse don't have that luxury because the threat is actually in the same house. There is no escape. And so the exposure to this, these levels of the stress hormone are constant. And actually, many victims of domestic abuse tell us that they were almost willing their abuser to hit them because the waiting was worse. Their view was that it was much better to let these levels of cortisol peak uh, and perhaps a single incident of violence and then allow them to return to normal, almost allowing the abuser to get it out of their system Uh, which would then get rid of the threat for that short time being, and then they can get on with living their life. And so they were living in this constant state of hypervigilance, wondering if and when something was going to happen. And all the while, this stress hormone cortisol is wreaking untold damage on our bodies. The stress hormone causes us to lose sleep, to have no appetite, and also just to become exhausted, developing problems such as high blood pressure, irritable bowel syndrome, and stomach ulcers, amongst lots of other things. It's just horrible, horrible stuff. 
Now, our brains can't seem to tell the difference between a tiger and modern-day dangers, and so its response to these dangers remains exactly the same. What we need to do is to try and break this cycle and allow our bodies to recognise that the danger has gone and that it's safe to relax. We almost have to trick our brains to come out of this survival mode because our modern-day threats require some modern-day methods to deal with them. Back then, we could just kill the tiger and end the threat, but we can't just do that now. We can't just kill our bosses or our abuser or whoever it is that is providing the threat. Now we need a different way to deal with this. And so how do we do it? Well, that is a really tough question. And it's something that uh, was at the root of deciding to start this podcast in the first instance. So hopefully this is something that we are going to look at as we go along and try and explore this from every possible angle uh, as we go through this podcast. We're all different, and what worked for me may not work for you. However, I've researched things that did work for me, and I've tried a variety of different strategies and techniques over the years, from counselling to cognitive behavioural therapy to mindfulness and meditation. And there appears to me to be one consistent theme through all of these approaches, and that is the need that we have to change our relationship with our emotions. We need to create a sense of detachment from our emotions, which is easier said than done. And that's not to say that we have to try and stifle our emotions or ignore them in some way, but rather we should acknowledge how we're feeling in a particular moment, but we do it in such a way that we create some distance between ourselves and the emotion itself. Now, don't worry if this seems like a a bit of a vague concept just now because it's something that will become much clearer as we go on. Uh, Ultimately, what we're doing here is we're having to change habits that we've had for years and it takes practice and time to change these kind of things. But to help us along the way, we're going to be looking at a variety of different techniques, philosophies, technologies and also just the latest thinking in medicine. We are going to hear, as I said before, from experts and also we're going to listen to the experience of others who have experienced anxiety and trauma. So there's lots and lots for us to explore. So this is just the beginning. But if you enjoyed this podcast, then please do click the subscribe button and join us for the next episode when we're going to be discussing emotional intelligence and why this could be both a blessing and a curse. So until next time, take care, stay safe. I'm David Walker, and you've been listening to The Quiet Mind.